activist based in the Twin Cities, and I am joined by journalist Logan Carroll. How are you doing today, Logan? I'm doing pretty good. I never, never tire of just the hope and encouragement of pretending like this is a weekly show. I'm going to just pretend and pretend. Just will it in, into existence. That's exactly. how the secret works. That's right, the secret. <laughs> and also introducing Hannah Jones. How are you doing today, Hannah? Doing all right. Um... It's a hot-ass St. Paul afternoon, everybody. That's okay. We are all dripping in my apartment right now without air conditioning, so sympathize with us. Logan, what else are we talking about today? Yeah, well, so the main segment tonight is uh, conversations with Stanley Payne. He's one of those four fascism experts that we talked to uh, in the first couple of episodes. Yes. Um, I found out his specialty is actually the modern history of Spain. So when I was thinking about putting together something about the Catholic Church, it occurred to me that, like, dang, that'd be a good person to talk to about the Catholic Church and the Franco regime. And it was. I learned a lot. Really blasted some of my preconceptions about it. And then I also talked to Heidi Schlumpf, who's the editor-in-chief of the National Catholic Reporter She's really awesome, has done some really great work about some of the big money that is behind the, the rightward drift. Out of deference to her, I would like us to keep it PG-13, ah. which means one F-bomb. I see. So I think we only get to keep the very best one. Okay. So, so now it's a contest. So now it's a contest. I'm going to have to bust out the bleep button. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> we could get creative with the bleeps. We could find a fun so sound to play instead of a bleep. Well, I'm excited for that as a recovering Catholic. I'm mm -hmm. excited to hear what those folks have to say. We've also got some news and uh, a newly produced segment from Hannah. Um, I have a... I'm going to say that it's a problem where I listen to the Minnesota House of Representatives talk, like, on purpose. So... I'm turning this problem into an opportunity where I heard somebody say something, it struck me as odd and a little bit incongruous, and then I researched it and realized it was deeply problematic. So we have that to look forward to. Ooh, awesome. Pretty excited about that. I'm stoked. But first, let's get into the news. items this week, like many weeks, are pulled from the weekly column This Week in Fascism over at itsgoingdown.org. As my co-host likes to say, journalism is a community effort, so please sign up to This Week in Fascism's LibraPay account to make a reoccurring donation and to support their work as they look to expand. And with that, our first item is... A group of Proud Boys were asked to do security for a May 6th event at a Portland-area church. According to Willamette Week, the event took place at a northeast Portland church, and the Multnomah County Republicans signed a contract with a security firm owned by a local Proud Boy, Daniel Tooze Sr. The Multnomah County Republicans plan to hold a recall vote to remove its current chairman, Stephen Lloyd, on May 6th. According to the Daily Beast, the Republicans did not disclose to the church the nature of the event. Quote, we're so regretful that we allowed the group to use it. End quote. Um, when Willamette Week reached out to Tooze, he told them, quote, a friend of the Republican Party asked if I would watch guard at the door for what they are worried about. Your hit piece done on their meeting because you guys are Antifa, and they were worried about you guys and your Antifa friends harassing their meeting, end quote. 
the hostility towards anybody actually showing up and saying, what are you doing, sounds a yeah. little bit brazen at this point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel like a good sign. Yeah. The following is a comment posted on the Nextdoor app in response to the roughly 30 Proud Boys patrolling the area the night of the event. Quote, Proud Boys were patrolling our block in groups from 5 p.m. to midnight. These patrols were pure intimidation. They were drinking, shouting to each other, shining flashlights into our neighbors' homes and faces, and displaying weapons. I find every post on Nextdoor delicious. They're all my <laughs> children. Like, Nextdoor is an app that exists where in my neighborhood somebody said, there is a human-sized dump next to my front door. I want to know who did it. <laughs> and straight up, some bitch named Cheryl put in a comment and said, it was me. <laughs> so, Nextdoor... That's, that's that's community when you got that kind of honesty between each other. That's community. It definitely creates a sense of accountability, I feel. And also, I'm like, how long were you looking at this deuce, man? Because <laughs> I got to download next door and see what's going on. Oh, it's a treat. You will regret it, but it's still very fun. <laughs> yeah, just to lurk, not to, not to post anything. <laughs> According to posts on social media, residents were even afraid to return to their homes for fear that Proud Boys would follow them. This fear is not misplaced. According to the Portland Mercury, there has been recently been a string of incidents at Portland homes where anti-racists, progressives, or Black Lives Matter signs have been set on fire. Oh. Yeah. The events of May 6th are not the first time that Proud Boys and groups directly linked to them like Patriot Prayer have been connected to the local GOP. The former head of the Multnomah County Republicans, James Bucall, currently legally represents far-right leader Joey Gibson, who is being sued for his role in an attack against patrons of a bar by Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer followers. Bucall has also spoken at various rallies alongside Gibson, the Proud Boys, and other white nationalists like Baked Alaska in Portland. Other local Republicans, like Matt Shea, I was actually on the other side of Washington, have also been caught, according to The Guardian, quote, taking part in private discussions with right-wing figures about carrying out surveillance, psyops, quote-unquote, and even violent attacks on perceived political enemies, according to chat records obtained by The Guardian. Now, I don't know what psyops means, but I'm also not confident he knows what psyops means. <laughs> yeah. I assume he just means mimetic warfare. Uh, like like slinging hot memes. Mm, yeah. I just think that's what he means. But Shay, Matt Shay, he's the one who did the uh, biblical justification for war. Yes. Uh, which was the, uh, we're going to kill everyone who's not a Christian. Or no, like kill all the men. Kill all the males. Who are not Christian. Yep. Phew. Yeah. yeah. Hooray. Did you hear about that? I'm going to be okay. <laughs> right. You'll <laughs> be fine. Me and Logan are fucking toast. I don't know about that. They got lots of problems with lots of people. No, 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 no. It's going to be fine. Everything else about me is totally kosher. Well, don't say kosher. They don't like that either. But seriously, if folks don't know who Matt Shea is, they should just run the Google on him real quick and look at his own words. That guy is severely unbalanced. Is that it? Yeah, yeah, I threw it out there. Cancel me. <laughs> <laughs> but but seriously though, I think this is a, another concerning step in the wrong direction. Clearly, the Republicans in many places, but including the Twin Cities and Portland, appear to be embracing the more openly conspiratorial, openly hostile, and racist elements in their political base. And while it might not be surprising to some, it should absolutely be setting off alarm bells. The continued marriage between the state and national level GOP and the far right could lead to more deadly consequences like we've already seen in the Northwest in recent years. One could argue that the Twin Cities is not too far behind. Well, next up, leaks of the Oath Keepers financial and membership documents shedding light on their funding. Hmm. BuzzFeed News has gained access to the Oath Keepers financial documents and membership information bringing to light new information about the inner workings of the group, including their fundraising and recruiting tactics. Since the January 6th attack on the Capitol, the group's membership has been in steady decline due to bad press and online deplatforming. 
However, in November and December of 2020, the Oath Keepers saw their largest two-month spike in membership in over three years. This is likely due to the fact that, in the lead-up to the election, Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes was featured frequently in right-wing media. BuzzFeed's reporting reveals that Rhodes maintains tight control over the group's membership and financial information. He claims that the group has over 35,000 members, but refuses to share membership lists with the leaders of local chapters. Local leaders and board members of the group have also complained that they receive no information about the Oath Keepers' financial status. This lack of transparency came to light in 2017 when it was revealed that an employee and member of the group had embezzled over $200,000. Rhodes, Rhodes covered up the incident and never reported it to the cops. BuzzFeed News notes that the group is a nonprofit but does not receive tax exempt status, meaning that they're perceived as a charity but are not legally required to file public tax returns or membership lists. In the Oath Keepers, members normally pay $1,200 for lifetime membership to the group, or $50 yearly, although lifetime membership is now slightly cheaper at around $1,000. I'm just mad about how much I pay for Photoshop now. <laughs> <laughs> you, could be, you could be an Oath Keeper. Honey. I could be an Oath Keeper. For life. There's a Kingdom Hearts Keyblade with that same name, and it's beautiful. <laughs> This lower rate is likely due to the deplatforming the group has faced in the wake of January 6th. They have also been banned from PayPal, Facebook, and Twitter, and the website host they relied on at the time of the riot. The group is now unable to process payments online, meaning that prospective members are now required to mail in their forms and dues, a fact that Rhodes blames on malicious leftist attacks. <laughs> Anti-fascists should probably take him. Goddamn lefty FBI. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, man, they got us. Now for my comment. Militia groups in the U.S. go back decades, and Oath Keepers are one of the more well-organized, public-facing formations of recent years. Along with another militia group, the Three Percenters, their membership consists of lots of former and active law enforcement and military which makes them a unique threat to both the state apparatus and to the communities which frequently get caught in their crosshairs. Out of all the far right groups in Minnesota, we easily have more Oath Keepers and Three Percenters than any other group. These folks are obviously well armed and frequently subscribe to elaborate conspiracies and ideologies like the Sovereign Citizen Movement. And though most of these poor bastards truly have no idea what they're doing, damn do they have some nice guns. Mm. <laughs> Like, whoa, boy, do they have guns. Uh, you like that kind of sophisticated tool just being used for whatever. Yeah, it's just it's a tool. It's like Photoshop. <laughs> it's just like Photoshop. You can do all sorts of shit with that. Yeah. You got anything on that? No. Both <laughs> <laughs> keepers, man, like... Poor dumbasses. So, speaking of sovereign citizens, let's bring it around to something local, real quick. Sovereign citizen steals vaccines from St. Paul Clinic post videos to Facebook. Oh, no. Yeah. This one's actually from Dina Winter at uh, Minnesota Reformer, so please check those folks out and support them. She's great. I work for her. A 32-year-old St. Paul man has posted multiple Facebook videos of himself stealing Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccines by pretending he wants to get vaccinated and then walking out with the vials. Thomas E. Murphy said on the videos he's a member of the so Sovereign Citizen Movement, which is an anti-government extremist group that believes they are sovereign from the United States. He also said on a video that he lost his business and home last year due to pandemic restrictions and now lives in a van with his dog. He says on another video he's been diagnosed with bipolar disorder but disagreed with the diagnosis. You know, these are things that humanize him a little bit. We can all understand what everyone's been going through, obviously, losing yeah. their jobs and things like that. I have nothing but empathy for someone like that, you know, or especially people with mental illness. but And we can definitely all con condemn that there is a ready-made narrative for yeah. this person to reach for when he fell into a dark place. We got the Tucker Carlsons out there that are, yeah, they're just priming the pump for all these mm -hmm. people that are getting absolutely screwed by all these different socioeconomic conditions that could be rectified and changed, but 
then they are justifiably mm. desperate, upset, and unstable. They're already really, really ready to mobilize, especially if somebody they listen to says it's okay. Yeah, the, all the infrastructure is there, the anger is there, the economic conditions are as bad as they've been, and getting worse. And I, I hate drawing the comparison to Hitler, you know, <laughs> but like after the beer hall pooch, it was 10 years. You know, and that's when things really went badly. Yeah, after right. he had a lovely stay in prison. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Wrote a great book. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Bestseller. Oh, fucking terrible book. Fucking toilet paper. Man, well, that's it for the news. before I, I tend to listen a lot to uh, public discourse by highly highly public facing elected officials in the Twin Cities um, a Democratic representative Jamie Long um, he's from Minneapolis puts forward a resolution quote a resolution condemning violence and violent rhetoric directed at our U United States Capitol and state capitals and affirming support for democracy rule of law and the certified results of Minnesota's election. We are going to play a game, and I'm going to ask you two which parts of that resolution, particularly that description, Republicans took the most umbrage with. Mm. Mm. I don't know, there's a couple good yeah. <laughs> things in there. Right, it's Wait, a really quick. Either democracy, the democracy part, or the part right at the end there about certifying the election. That was my guess. Certify the election. Okay, I'll take the other one. The, it is the democracy part, as you oh, said. Oh, the democracy part. It is part. literally referring to the United States of America as a democracy. Oh. So let's go down the line, <laughs> shall we? A gentleman named Glenn Grunagen. He is from Glencoe. He's a Republican representative. Again, that's an alliterative thing. Glencoe. <laughs> um, he has a problem with the usage of the word democracy. He says, we're a constitutional republic. We're not a democracy. It's the most subversive <laughs> argument ever. Right? Mm. It seems that way. Uh, Cal Bar. Cal Bar. Cal Bar. <laughs> Probably that was Cal Bar. Of East Bethel, he points out that Article 4 of the Constitution calls our government a Republican, quote, form of government. Uh, and Barr says, the, the Republic is the way that the minority gets its rights protected from the tyranny of the majority. And he claimed that, you know, democracy is what we witnessed at the Capitol that day. It's just a bunch of people with guns. Next, Anne New of North Branch. She offers to amend the resolution and say constitutional republic instead of democracy. Right. This amendment narrowly fails. Wow. The most inane argument of the day goes to Eric Lucero saying, in the Pledge of Allegiance, it says, and to the republic for which it stands. Oh, oh, oh you got, got us. Got oh, him. man. That's I'm, right. I'm, I'm a Republican now. And I'm straight. <laughs> I was very personally surprised by the sort of pointless turn that this took. Why is this so important to the right? I asked Gurunagan. Uh, I sent him an email. He didn't respond. So for a more philosophical view, we turn to the conservative think tank and general chamber of nightmares, the Heritage Foundation. <laughs> Just imagine, like, the restless soul of David Koch. Mm -hmm. Just, Just wandering the halls in chains. Drinking shandies with Andrew Breitbart. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this is from June 19th, 2020. The Heritage Foundation article describes republicanism as the antidote to America's, quote, addiction to egalitarianism. The acidic effects of this egalitarian imperative on the forms that long defined social life in America are clear. Democratic habits, an ethic of familiarity, 
and egalitarian social, fiscal, and educational policies have erased any meaningful differences between the sexes, denied special place reserved under the law for the traditional family, replaced procreation with the equalizing power of, quote, choice as the basics of marriage, flattened the economic inequalities between the rich and the poor, treated good and bad students as equals, and dissolved the difference between citizen and foreigner. As for religion, especially its Judeo-Christian form, democratic mockery of it and its preoccupations with the soul has long pushed the ele this elevating resource to the sidelines of American life. So, that was a lot to unpack, but in short, when everybody gets an equal say, nobody gets to be better or more valid than anyone else. And if you really like the traditional family and religious structures, mm -hmm. that's a problem for you. Mm -hmm. It should be noted that we have a lot of different kinds of people in this country. The, the, this phrase... Tyranny of the majority? Though. Tyranny of the majority very much rings the Marxist concept of dictatorship of the proletariat. I think the idea is to try to flip the... the proverbial pyramid, you know, and put the 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 masses on top and in, in that position of power. And I think that's what the Republicans probably think of when mm -hmm. they're trying to get rid of anything that smacks of democracy because they would like to return to core values that we all share, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, you it's know not, what I mean? It's not that we have them, it's that they like it doesn't matter whether you believe them or not, they're true, and we just have to enshrine them in law no matter what people want or think they want. Right. Exactly. They can argue that people, uh, that cooler heads will prevail and that eventually we'll stop talking about, you know, stuff like trans liberation and that mm -hmm. people will just stop being trans if they can hold the line long enough. If, if only we let traditional morality discipline us. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Had a lot of work to do. So I ran outside. Put the sun in my eyes. Met up with Uncle Chuck. Stole an ice cream truck. Drove in a pothole. Ended up in the hospital. Through praise with the patients. Got a baby present. Took my dog for a walk. Went around the boardwalk. Things got reversed. She took off her shirt. I was raised Catholic. Um, I don't know. I know you said you were Miles. Yes, I was. I don't know what experience you've had with Catholicism, Hannah. Damn. I guess I'm the resident ex-Protestant here. Ooh. I became aware of Catholicism by being like, oh my gosh, you could be Christian and goth. That is so cool. <laughs> the Catholic religion is pretty goth. Lots it's of, very metal. Lots of broody stuff. There's like transmutation. So. <laughs> Transubstantiation. Oh, dang it. Yeah. I made it sound like yeah. Harry Potter, but it was Catholicism. <laughs> Bad Catholic. Catholicism is uh, kind of a big deal in like the history of America and in politics today. They're a major voting bloc. Mm -hmm. There's some big names on the conservative side. We tend to think of Catholicism as being conservative, mm -hmm. as being a conservative religion. Um, you know, we got like Bill O'Reilly, Amy Coleman Barrett, uh, you got your, uh, Steve Bannon, Paul Ryans, uh, Adrian Vermeule, who we're gonna mention once or twice. We talked about him in a previous episode. Mm -hmm. He's the Harvard Law professor who wrote the essay about establishing Catholic agents at strategic places around the government so that they could basically do a Catholic coup. Oh no! Well, hey, not all Catholics. Are thus. Mm, um, don't all, not all Catholics us. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Are thus. Are thus. Are thus. Are thus. Um, get Joe Biden, mm -hmm. Catholic, yeah. and as well as a couple of uh, very notable comedians, Stephen Colbert mm -hmm. and Jim Gaffigan, who rather famously went on a expletive-laden tirade against Trump. We get this question then of like, how did the Catholic Church go from being like Dorothy Day, JFK, to being more associated with your Adrian Vermeules and Steve Bannons? And if I'm being completely honest, I just have this paranoia that like, oh shit, the fascists are coming, 
and I'm worried the Catholics are going to be with them. Mm-hmm. Mm. I'll, I'll just say it now. I was very pleasantly surprised. Uh, Catholics won't be with fascists. I'll just say that right now. They won't be. I'm going to make that call right now. Gosh, I hope so. <laughs> I, I think you'll be convinced by the end of it. I, I, I asked this like really briefly, but I am curious, uh, too, Miles, what about your experience with Catholicism? Ex-Catholic, how would you describe your experience? I mean, it, it, it kind of faded as I got older, um, and then I got confirmed when I was like sixteen or seventeen. I went through the hoops, you know. Ancient, got that the, oil. yeah, got anointed, son. Got to eat some bread and some wine. I don't know. When I was young, when you're getting told like the the creation story and stuff like that, I was just like very much a literalist, and like this does not fit with my rational brain, and like. Who came first, the dinosaurs or Jesus? You know what I mean? I was just like very confused. I remember asking my priest that one time and he just looked at me like dumbfounded, like go to have faith. You know what I mean? And I just, like I said, I went through the motions, but it took me many years to really kind of find an understanding with spirituality and the role of religion in society and why we tell ourselves these stories, why we find and cultivate these communities and things like that. And Mm so that's, in a nutshell, my experience with Catholicism, and it's it's been several years since I stepped foot in a church, but I am interested in the politics, though as I'm admittedly not as read up on the subject as you are. And I'm not as read up on it as either Stanley Payne nor Heidi Schlumpf, <laughs> um, who we're going to talk to in a second. Uh, so one other thing, as uh, you've been noting, <laughs> the Catholic Church is rather... Uh, Baroque? Yeah, I'd say, I mean, frankly, big fan of the aesthetic. Or I I was thinking just the the massive, like, centuries upon centuries of tangled in on itself thought and church law and ideas and there's there's lots of jargon. What I would put into it. If if Catholicism were a video game, if I were playing it, what I would call this is the deep lore. Mm. Deep lore, yeah. So here's some deep lore we should talk about really quick. Just okay. a couple of couple of quick big level concepts that are going to come up. Um, I tried to cut out a few of them, uh, and it was successful. But there's a couple that are just too big. So one of the big ones we're going to talk about really quick is Vatican II. Ooh, yes, 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 yes. You heard of it? I've heard of it, but I'm dying to know more. Okay. So basically, in the '60s, Pope John XXIII uh, called this uh, big meeting basically representatives from across the church came together and they sat down and they went through, again, the deep lore of the church and they were like, well, how much of this do we actually believe and how much of this is just shit we were doing in the third century and forgot to stop doing? Mm-hmm. Um, the upshot of all this uh, is that it liberalized the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, there used to be Latin Mass. That went away. Because of Vatican II, they ruled that, like, you should actually, actually, you should, you should say mass and prayers in the language that people can understand. Yeah. Um, things like that. Uh, it changed a bunch of the laws around, I don't know, church architecture and stuff like that. And, I mean, it got, like, really granular, but the, the upshot is. One, sorry, one of the other big things was, like, just, it was trying to, like, kind of just encourage better relations between the major religions too wasn't it like trying to just mm-hmm. specifically jewish folks because there's always been this long running thing yeah. between the catholics and the church the jewish folks yeah that yeah that was that was something That's that came out of it was like they they specifically called for that and one of the uh purposes was to like identify the times that the catholic church was culpable causing division and to apologize for it. So and it, it was like very, very good as a general thing to say. So just that's Vatican II. Liberalized the Catholic Church. Uh, it clarified its relationship to the modern world. Um, so another term that pops up um, is magisterium, which... That sounds so cool. Right? Doesn't that sound like a Magic the Gathering card? Yes, it it's does. Like, like Pope John the Twenty Third's Magisterium, <laughs> and he just looks like really stern. And maybe there's like no, that's the sub boss. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the Magisterium just means it's like the authority of the church. Mm-hmm. It's like 
uh, I, I don't really have a, a, a super firm grasp on it, but when you hear that word, it just means like the authority of the church and the uh, it's like like the legitimacy, like you know, when the church talks, it's the magisterium, you know, it's the it's the mandate exactly. So, so these are the concepts. Now, I had this real anxiety that huge swaths of the Catholic Church were going to line up behind the coming dictator because, yes, beer hall push, ten years out. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. But I also had sort of like just this vague awareness that like the real story is probably more complex than that. So I reached out to two people, Stanley Payne, who I mentioned in the intro, specializes in the history of Spain. Hello, Professor. This is Logan Carroll. Yes? How are you today, sir? Uh, all right. Just a second. Let me turn off the light here. Yeah, absolutely. Can you love this guy's voice? In my mind, right. right. What could I do for you today? One of the first big misconceptions I had about the relationship between the Catholic Church and Franco uh, is about why they supported him. I didn't realize this. I've never heard anybody talk about this, but the Republican government, the leftist Republican government, was massively repressive. Catholic Church, mm-hmm. um, and Payne explained that. You mean they were being attacked by the um, the the? But, you know, but by first by Republican anti-clericalism, which became mm-hmm. more and more intense and extreme, and then by the outbreak of the revolution mm-hmm. and the mass murders, seven thousand clergy liquidated mainly in six months is quite a killing, something that you hardly even saw in the Soviet Union at any one time. When Catholicism is being eliminated and not a single church open in the half or more of the country, the Catholic Church and its leadership is placed in an extreme crisis situation. So naturally, the church is going to end up on the side of the nationalists and Franco. There could not really be any alternative question. Uh, uh, Franco himself was an observant Catholic. I don't know, you know, you could have your own measurement of what is true devotion. On the other hand, in politics, he had always been a prudent man. It was indeed, he considered it totally pragmatic and had indicated at first that he thought the best thing for Spain was something like Portugal, mm-hmm. which had a regime that did not restore the association, the identity of church and state. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was what Franco was invoking initially uh, during the first two months of the Civil War, and then he changed to a much more complete and extreme position. His thinking on, on all these issues was radicalized by the experience of the Civil War itself. So here was a new kind of complete dictatorship, a radical new dictatorship being organized in Spain, which only went in the very best relationship with the church. But the way the Vatican saw this, uh, to get too closely involved with Franco was going to tie the church down with a radical new dictatorship, which was involved in the most horrendous kind of conflict, which was uh, producing mass killings of civilians. And what on earth was that going to lead to? So although on the one hand, uh, Franco was presenting his new regime as the most Catholic government in the world because it was willing to reassociate officially church and state and do other things as well. The Vatican didn't see it that way. How, how did, you know, the, the, the average Catholic people, how did they interact with the Franco regime? Was it, was it strongly supportive? Generally strongly supportive. Uh, from the beginning of the Civil War on into the early 1960s. Although the feeling was uh, always on the part of sensitive Catholics and the church leadership that the regime was too heavy-handed and also that the dictatorship contained a fascist element that was radical and was essentially hostile to Catholicism, even though it could not be overtly expressed in these terms. The Falange, the, the, the state party, uh-huh. the FET, remained basically anti-clerical. Now, they had to be pretty careful. They could not challenge Franco. But these attitudes remained subterranean. Shortly after the revolution, Franco 
reached an agreement with the with the church where he could have like final say over which bishops got appointed. Did he appoint bishops who would, for lack of a better word, propagandize or indoctrinate people on behalf of the regime? Uh, he certainly wanted to have reliable bishops, and uh, there was very little difficulty with that. Well, that made a change in the 60s. Yeah. With Vatican II and the secularization, liberalization of Catholic attitudes, when a bishopric became vacant during the 1960s, what the Vatican began to do was to appoint a temporary auxiliary bishop, and they continued year after year, and there got to be more and more of them. They were younger Spanish auxiliary bishops whose political attitudes were much more diverse and liberal. It was a challenge to Franco III over the church. And by the end of the 60s, the younger clergy had begun to be identified, not officially, but in practice, really as a portion of the opposition. They even got to the point of the Basque Country that by the early 1970s, they were assisting and sheltering, in some cases, outright political terrorists who were killing people. So things were getting very bad by, by about 1970. And Franco really didn't understand it. As he wrote by hand on one of his documents, Que puñalada por la espalda. What a stab in the back. The church was, as a matter of principle, rejecting its place of privilege. That is correct. Now, the cynic would say that you come down to the late 1960s and Franco was getting older and older, therefore it is a reasonable calculation that the long-run future of Spain is going to be more democratic, constitutional, and parliamentary, and you'd better get with that sort of thing. Uh, that was probably the way it was seen in Rome. Uh -huh. uh, but this, on the other hand, would not deny the sincerity of the more liberal attitudes and values of the dissident Catholics themselves. What, what are the lessons, the history of the Catholic Church and their relationship with the Franco regime, that that could give to Catholics today? Uh, you know, it, it's such a distinct and extreme situation that it doesn't bear too much comparison. The lesson there is that the, the relationships between church and state are very complicated, and one should be damned careful and prudent about what one is asking for, and think about the long-range implications of it, and not just how it may favor some kind of short-term interest. I guess that's the only way, very simply, I would put the lesson that I see. I like this well, game. Well, thank you, sir, very much. Yeah, cool God, he's a fucking... Yeah, no, you're, you're very he just knows how to synthesize, you know what I mean? Bye. And I love it when classy people swear, even even just a damn. Uh, mm -hmm. It's so lovely. Right? A nice Alex Trebek type. Can you do Did he swear? Oh, yeah. There are plenty of outtakes where he's just like, and for the category... <laughs> the most demure, lovely, sort of punch of a... We up on so, Heidi now? We are, because, you know, the historical context only gets you so far. So mm -hmm. um, I reached out to Heidi Schlumpf, who's the editor-in-chief of the National Catholic Reporter. And uh, she was good enough to speak to me, like, two months ago. And <laughs> I was asking when it's going to come out, so I'll be, I'm really excited to be able to send it to her. <laughs> be like, um, hey, remember me. <laughs> I grew up in a more progressive um parish and in a progressive church overall. Um, when I got older, after I graduated from college and I was working as a journalist for a while, I started getting involved in Catholic journalism. And initially I worked for the Diocesan newspaper, the Archdiocesan newspaper here in Chicago. And at the time, the bishop here was Cardinal Bernardine, who many, who since died, but who many, you know, kind of revere as a, a leader of the progressive church. So I joined National Catholic Reporter. I was a columnist for a while while I was um, working at a university. 
And then I was their national correspondent for a couple of years, and I became the executive editor about a year ago. For progressive or liberal, you know, these are not the best terms, but for progressive or liberal Catholics for 50-some years, NCR has kind of been there um, reporting the news, providing commentary, analysis, and kind of helping to create a community among more progressive Catholics. One of the things Heidi talked about was the reasons why the Catholic Church has shifted to the right mm. in the last several decades. Um, and she listed several reasons. Well, there's, there's not a simple answer, but much of it has to do with moving from being the immigrant class, you know, and so majority of Catholics earlier in the 20th century were immigrants and were working class or poor. Uh-huh. Now you're, they're in the middle and upper classes. And, and, and we have to be careful. So when we talk about a lot of these conservative Catholics, primarily we're talking about white Catholics. But, yeah, you saw, you know, over the last five years, this portion of Catholics and a, a majority of white Catholics choosing, um, you know, Trump, you know, and 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 then increasingly sticking with that choice, even like, as you said, it became more and more clear that that was, you know, inching towards an authoritarianism that was pretty scary. And and many conservative Catholics see themselves as a very persecuted group, even though they hold immense power and wealth in the country, they see themselves as persecuted. The average person who enters seminary today to become a priest is a pretty conservative person, and many of them are wishing for the church of, like, the 1950s. Uh Now, some people point a lot to, they point to Roe versus Way as galvanizing both evangelical Christians and, you know, many Catholics around this culture war issue. And then you get to this point today where people are voting, you know, against their economic interests, against many of their other values, against many of their church's values, all around this single issue of abortion. And like you said, even willing to to support authoritarianism or to, um, you know, join conspiracy theories. So specifically, when we have certain bishops and even the Bishops' Conference um, speaking out against vaccines for coronavirus, I mean, what could be a more pro-life issue when half a million Americans have died in the last year from this disease, and yet they're sort of taking this very small issue regarding the use of some cells that were obtained in the abortion, you know, decades ago in the testing and, and maybe production of one of the vaccines to come out with statements that say that, um, you know, so confusion about this, but also kind of encourage people not to get vaccinated, at least with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Now, a lot of other bishops have come out since then and said, no, you should get the vaccine. It's the pro-life thing to do. But yeah, again, abortion sort of trumps everything. Um, Um, And this is, this happens with a a select, with a number of the church leaders and, and among the bishops, unfortunately, we kind of have a majority there of people who are more of these culture warrior conservative folks. There's another dimension to this whole story too, which is rightward shift. Um, And Heidi, personally, as as well as like other editors and writers at the National Catholic Reporter for the last several years, have done a lot of work um, investigating and documenting the ways that extreme wealth Mm. are playing into this dynamic and helping to drive the church to the right. And she talked about some of the work that they've done. Ah. Would you like to hear about it? Yeah. Sure. NCR was one of the first publications to cover the sex abuse crisis in the church. This was way before my time and way before the Boston Globe. So we have this long history of investigative uh, journalism. A number of years ago, the editors at the time turned their attention to what they saw as a very big story that was being missed by other uh, journalists, and namely that was the influence of money in that move. Mm -hmm. The first story about this was a series of stories about the Knights of Columbus. So the Knights of Columbus are those guys that sell the Tootsie Rolls outside of church. Um, They do a lot of great charity work. It's kind of a good organization. But what the investigative journalists who wrote the pieces for NCR several years ago found was that 
um, there was a lot of money there, and a lot of that money was being used <clears throat> not just to, you know, you know, to help people with disabilities through selling Tootsie Rolls, but to support a number of really conservative political movements, especially anti-gay marriage, uh, you know, movements in various states. Subsequent stories looked at the Catholic University of America and how they were accepting quite a bit of money from the Koch brothers and also from a very uh, conservative California. His name is Tim Bush. And now the business school at Catholic University of America is the Bush School. Then once I came on as the national correspondent in uh, 2017, I quickly was put on uh, doing a number of these kinds of stories as well. The Eternal Word Television Network, or EWTN, which is this cable news network that some people may have known from decades ago there was you know an older nun mother angelica who founded this television network and she seemed like this folksy nice person you could get mass there and various people doing prayers well that you know especially after her death was built into a huge conservative media conglomerate and it's global it's not just national Mm -hmm. um and and so we were trying to point out what EWTN had become, how influential it was around the world in portraying a certain kind of conservative Catholicism to the rest of the world, and also how a number of the people who funded this and were involved in it were connected with these other organizations. You know, so you got Tim Bush again with the Napa Institute. You got Frank Hanna, who's another very conservative Catholic donor. You called EWTN the Fox News, uh, the Catholic Fox News, I think is what you said. Yeah, so I mean, I think it's evolved into that over the years. It has become this network. It owns a newspaper called the Catholic Register. You have connections with the Catholic News Agency, which is a sort of a wire service. And you have all these media outlets out there who are presenting this idea of Catholicism as this right-wing religion. And of course, the irony is, is that if you go back to like, you know, Jesus, or even the foundational documents of Catholicism, or the the rich Catholic social teaching of Catholicism, nothing could be further from the truth. Now, part of the problem is that many of these conservative Catholics, especially in America, and the wealthier ones, don't like Pope Francis. Mm-hmm. Because, he, first of all, he has this, you know, anti, you know, challenges to the consumerist capitalist uh, message. But also he's a little bit more progressive. You know, he's no super lefty or anything, but he's a little bit more progressive about some other church things. You know, famously being more open to dialogue and, um, you know, he said, who am I to judge about LGBT people, although he's not you know, changing anything in church doctrine on that. Mm -hmm. Um, He's not that great in terms of, like, women in the church, but he's just more open generally than the previous two popes, so Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict. But, yeah, there are some of these fringe groups, um, and there's so many of them. I mean, I could list a bunch of them, but, you know, there's it's it's, and it's growing, and many of them are connected. You know, they, if they have the money to fund it, they can, you know, start their organization, they can, um, you know, uh, especially those that, that have a strong media presence, they can have an influence. Maybe, maybe you could quickly, just for people who, aren't, who don't know what it means, maybe you could quickly describe what set of vacantism is. Yeah, so I'm not an expert on that, but state of vacantism is are people who believe that the papacy is actually empty because they believe the current occupancy of the papacy is not a true pope. So there are a number of these conspiracy theories that involve, I don't know, Masons and all kinds of other, you know, kind of crazy things that would insist that, um, you know, some somehow the papal election of Francis or, or something was not, you know, done correctly and so he's not really the pope. Um, you know, I'm not going to say, I mean, I wasn't a real lover of the previous two popes either, but I I never denied that they were actually the pope. Um, And I think you do have a lot of liberal Catholics who challenge a lot about church hierarchy. Um, And I don't have a problem with that if it's sort of grounded in reality. 
Um, but it is also hard to say that you're a conservative Catholic and that you're all about the institution if you're not even recognizing the formal institution. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it has gotten so extreme that even, you know, there are a number of people that, uh, that use the term, they used to call themselves sort of rad trads. So this refers to like a radical traditionalist, yeah. um, somebody who was into the Latin mass and, you know, believed a lot of church teaching around sexuality, um, you know, maybe you know, more conservative in their spiritual practices and stuff like that, who many of those folks have in the last couple of years, you know, between uh, Catholics who stuck with Trump when he started getting very scary, um, and then also who, who seem to be, um, you know, saying that the Pope's not really the Pope. You have a number of them who I would, are now kind of sort of former rad trads. They're still not like super liberal people, but they cannot align themselves any longer mm -hmm. with this radical right-wing part of the church. Mm -hmm. um, so... We talked about the the role that the abortion issue plays in driving some of this uh, this rightward shift. It seems to me you said something very similar. Their their concerns extend far far beyond abortion to you know almost like a blanket rejection of civil pluralism. I th I think like a good example of this comes from. Uh, Adrian, uh, an article I was just skimming uh, that Adrian Vermeule wrote in First Things, where he said that, like, yesterday the frontier was divorce, contraception, and abortion. Then it became same-sex marriage. Today it's transgenderism. Tomorrow it may be polygamy, consensual adult incest, or who knows what. Now, like, I don't want to get, like, too hung up on this, because it could just be, like, one poorly phrased sentence. But, but describing these other cultural issues as, like, they're even further out on the frontier than abortion is. It seems to belie the fact that this is primarily about abortion. And in that same piece, he calls, he says that there can be like no peace with liberalism. It's, it's honestly like hopeful to hear you say that these elements are, are much more fringe. Maybe they've got like a more outsized voice than they do. Yeah, definitely outsized voice and outside and outsized money. Yeah. And, and those two things are connected. But what happens is that abortion, and then and then next it's LGBT marriage, and then next it's transgenderism. These things become kind of symbols. I mean, I certainly many people who consider themselves pro-life or anti-gay marriage, or who are not supportive of transgender people, mm -hmm. they do believe, you know, what they believe. But those things also become symbols for just kind of their way of life, right? So they're part of, this is where, again, it's kind of similar to white evangelical Christianity in America, where this is part of a group of people feeling like they're losing their um, influence or control over that being kind of what the mm -hmm. culture was. So now you can question whether even in the 1950s, whether really that's what America was. Was it like, you know, a, a, two, you know, a white mom and dad living in the suburbs with two kids and everything was perfect? <laughs> a lot of people think not, and, there, and that ignores a huge segment of people living in America. But yeah. they, that was considered an ideal, at least, and something that people, you know, were striving for. And now... There's a group of people who are saying, wait, if that's not even the ideal anymore, then the whole culture is going to hell in the handbasket. And so they're very concerned, not just about transgender people, but how that's representative of sort of white Christian culture, you know, being threatened by this plurality that you're talking about. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think we can forget or, or skip how racial much of this is because the thing that scared people a lot is brown immigrants coming across the border a black president you know um mm -hmm. uh Im you know immigration and um and and people of color and and people with different values standing up and saying you know my values count too so you know in some sense i have some 
empathy or understanding for how threatening that must feel to someone who previously uh, didn't have to feel like they had to share any power with anybody else. But um, I don't think that our Catholic faith calls for us to um, to be exclusionary um, as a way of preserving some idealized white 1950s culture. Mm-hmm. That, that's not what Catholicism is about to me anyway. Yeah, and I think for a lot of everyday Catholics who maybe are are more conservative than, you know, the average NCR reader, for example, uh-huh. when they went that far, that's when things started to get a little, you started to see some pushback from everyday conservative Catholics. Mm-hmm. So, for example, during the whole scandal with that involved former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick and a lot of questions about you know, how many people knew that he was abusing seminarians and even some some uh, children or younger people, um, and this kind of all blew up right in 2018. And for the first time now, you had a bunch of conservative Catholics saying, oh, my gosh, sex abuse, it's this huge problem in the church. And, of course, as I mentioned, right, so NCR was writing about sex abuse in the 19. 19- you know, 70s and 80s, and at that time, a conservative Catholic would say, NCR is terrible because they're, you know, questioning our our priests and our church. And, you know, over the course of the decades, you know, conservatives not only came to see that, yes, it was true that we had a real problem with uh, clergy sex abuse and cover-up, but by the time it got to the McCarrick thing in 2018, conservatives were claiming this as their issue, right? Uh-huh. And especially they wanted to focus on the homosexuality of uh, priest perpetrators. And at that time, you also saw um, this kind of rogue archbishop, uh, Carlo, Carlo uh, Maria Vigano, who used to be um, stationed here. In the, he's an Italian, but he used to be here as the... Uh, the papal nuncio, um, who started accusing Pope Francis of, of covering up uh, this Cardinal McCarrick. Uh-huh. Well, it turns out after they did this huge, uh, you know, year-long investigation, it turns out the Pope that was really turning the blind eye to McCarrick's abuse and who knew about it was Pope John Paul II, which of course is the favorite of conservative Catholics because he was kind of a doctrinal you know, hard guy. Yeah. Um, but they were blaming, uh, this Vigano was blaming um, blaming uh, Pope Francis and now has become this huge conspiracy theorist who's questioning whether, you know, Francis is really Pope and all this Trump stuff. And, you know, some conservative Catholics are starting to say like, whoa, <laughs> this is getting a little too far. Um, but some of them sadly are kind of going down the rabbit hole, I would say. I, I will say... I'm hopeful because I know more progressive Catholics than I know right-wing Catholics. So, like, I know they're out there, they're in the bishops' conference, they're in the seminaries, but the average Catholic is probably more like you, Logan, than, and like me than, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. that priest in Minnesota. Uh, did that, that, that's all the questions I had. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, but I was wondering if there were... Any questions I didn't ask that maybe I should have, or maybe throughout this conversation you had some thoughts occur to you that you didn't feel like you had space to share? I was just wondering if there was anything you'd like to add. No, you had a lot of really good questions. I I will tell you that I feel like I'm having this conversation more and more with journalists. Um, It seems to be a story, much um, much like kind of the sex abuse story that NCR broke for a while and then was eventually picked up by by the rest of the world. Um, this seems to be a story that's really getting out there now, and the, you know, the Catherine Stewart uh, piece is just one of many that I'm seeing in secular publications, especially because of the whole um, Trump phenomenon and everything, okay. um, that, it's, that it's something that people are uh, paying attention to, which I think is a good thing, um, because a little sunlight into all of this generally... Um, can be helpful in in maybe turning things around so that this isn't such an issue in the church. But, so I appreciate that you're looking into it, and I hope yeah. that it's somewhat, I mean, it can be discouraging, but it also can be somewhat encouraging to know that you're not alone as a, a progressive person with a Catholic background out there. Well, 
of of our five regular contributors, donors to the show, my brother is one of them, and he is a he's a very devout practicing Catholic who's more progressive. Mm. So I think he's going to be very excited by this. Um, thank That's you, good. thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Great. Well, just keep in touch. If you have any follow up questions, let me know, and let me know when that when the uh, episode comes out. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I will. Um, it, yeah, <laughs> have a good one, Heidi. All right. Good luck, Logan. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, I just want to say she's probably the raddest Catholic I've ever listened to. She's that's pretty fucking rad. She's super fucking rad. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, part of me always knew that there was, there is a quote-unquote radical tradition inside the Catholic Church. My exposure to it is very limited, so I don't know a ton of that history. I have some friends who have some Catholic worker in their lineage, you know what I mean? And they, they if you ask me, what would I, how would I describe this rightward swing that we've been alluding to this whole time? I wouldn't be able to give you a clear-cut answer, and I don't think that there is one single thing, but I do appreciate that Heidi brought in that radical analysis, you know what I mean? Bringing... Uh, race and gender and shifting demographics into the conversation, the role of wealth and wealth disparity and the way that the media has been used inside the Catholic Church itself to almost split itself and to feed this conservative side and make it seem like it is the whole of the, the church, you know, when she said, you know, like like she said, that nothing could be further from the truth. There's way more progressive Catholics out there than we probably are aware of. It's true. I hang out with several very lovely Catholic people. And I'd always have the experience of, you know, talking to them and having a delightful afternoon. And then going to work and having to cover some incredibly riotously weird bullshit that, you know, a Catholic bishop has said during, like, a homily. Right. And feeling this... Not being inside the church and not knowing what what exactly is going on in here. And the answer is all of it. Like, it's all going on at the same time. But most of the Catholics you're going to meet are like my friends and like you too. And it sucks because they, again, are not the folks being amplified because they're not the folks with the most power. Weird how that sort of correlates. Right. <laughs> yeah. Very good point. Um so one of the things Heidi said that didn't make it into the cut um, was she made the observation that like a lot of other religious groups uh, like tend to skew one way or the other mm-hmm. politically. So like evangelical Christians are overwhelmingly conservative. Um, the Jewish community in America overwhelmingly liberal. True. And um, Catholics are really weird because there's almost a straight down the middle split. There's been a schism. Not not a schism yet. Um, but, and, and actually, like, that was one of the things she said that made me really hopeful was, like, when it, when, when, like, the rubber just hits the road, when it really comes down to it, most Catholics are just gonna, like, suck it up and go with the Pope. Mm-hmm. So. You know, I feel like there's just these tendencies in humans to be either dicks <laughs> or altruists, cynics, or hopeful folks you know it it's like which what what's the phrase like which animal do you feed or which wolf do you feed you know what i mean inside you there are two wolves one is gay the other is gay you are gay and the podcast joining us. Uh, we hope that you've enjoyed this hour and change as much as we have. Oh, for us, it was much longer. That's the fun thing. With this episode, I think we're we're calling it for college season or whatever. We're going to take a little break. 
We're going to put together a, a fundraising episode to beg for money and explain why we need it. Um, no surprises. we got to eat. Um, right. Miles mentioned Portland episode. Oh, yeah. We got lots of episodes in my head. I be, yeah, we, we've got that Bronze Age pervert one. We've yep. teased, I think, in every episode now. Yeah, oh, Proud Boys. So we got the malicious stuff. We got to talk about the campus issue. We need to talk about... Fourth Precinct shooting. Fourth Precinct shooting. Yeah, another extremely relevant piece of local history that I don't think everyone knows about. So I'm excited to bring that one forward for sure. We're going to put together some teasers for you so you get some idea. Um, and Hannah's new enough that we haven't even heard any any ideas from you yet. About... Hey, I have some ideas um, about <laughs> pop culture and the fight against fascism slash the fight for fascism. Um, specifically regarding uh, Red Hood and uh, Red Skull, actually, and Ta-Nehisi Coates and who gets to be Captain America, which is a fun discussion I'd love to have in the future. Interesting. Okay. I'm into that. I could dig that. They yeah. keep putting actual YouTubers into the mouth of Red Skull, and it's very funny and salty, and everyone on the right is so mad. Yeah. So we got big ideas, and we'll be in touch. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends about the episodes we got up. Follow us on Twitter at unbalanced underscore MN. Follow us on Patreon at patreon.com slash unbalanced MN. And if the women don't find you handsome, they can at least find you handy. <laughs> Thanks for listening, folks. Music this week is Coastin' by Defy the Mall, Back Row Kids by Normcore. Iguana by Plaga de Baila, and Procrastinating in the Sun by The Spin Wires. All are licensed under a non-commercial attribution share-alike Creative Commons license and available at freemusicarchive.org. Our theme song is, as always, Sacrilegious by Dan Carroll with Wes Mitchell on drums. Oh,